Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Christie Scanlon podcast. This week I speak to a friend and an expert within the field of addiction, Dan Martin. Dan Martin is a performance coach that helps those within the business field around addiction and supports individuals to help them recover over certain addictive habits that are common within modern society. Dan, in this episode, dissects down some of the stigmas around addiction. We really explore culture within business and other fields and how we can support individuals and groups of people around addictive behaviors that might transpire. Every week we have a different guest uploaded, so if you are not already, please follow the podcast wherever you are listening to this audio. You can watch the visual podcast on my YouTube channel by searching Christy Scanlon. And until the next time, see you on the next one. Let's reflect back on before your current role, and we'll go into your role in a moment, around addiction and uh, other factors around kind of this personality trait that you had. Can you kind of elaborate and let viewers and listeners know about where this started for you and how you your journey began? Of course. Yeah, a place where I typically start is summer 2020. At that point in time, I was in over 20 grand worth of debt. I was using cocaine weekly. I was successful, earning 50, 60 grand a year in a job, which some elements of I enjoyed, but deep down I knew it wasn't for me. And there's a pivotal moment which comes to mind whereby I had a return to work meeting with my boss at the time, who was a sales director. And it was a difficult conversation. I felt quite anxious leading up to that conversation. And he said something to me which stuck with me forever. And he said, you went on lockdown one person spent a few months away from the business and you've returned someone completely different I don't really know who Dan is anymore and those words served as like a hammer to a mirror and it just shattered everything which I knew about myself my identity my beliefs my purpose none of it really made sense anymore so from that point onwards I recognized that I had a lot of work to do so that meant starting therapy working through all my various addictions that meant retraining as a therapist, finding a career which gave me actual fulfillment and made me feel um, like I was giving something back to the world. But that was a real trigger event for me. Prior to that, number of different events that happened which were quite traumatic caused me to hold on to quite a lot of pain which then drove me into addictive and destructive behaviours. So... There's a lot to unpack there. You tell me where you'd like me to go yeah, with that. So you mentioned traumatic behaviours and kind of those traumatic experiences. Yeah. Want to kind of open up about that and yeah. how that aligns with addiction and behavioural concepts within that area? Absolutely, yeah. So it'd probably help if I gave some context on addiction before I went into those. So um, there's a big misconception about addiction insofar as a lot of people will approach the behaviour as the problem. So if we just take the cocaine away from someone, then the addiction will disappear. It doesn't work like that. Addiction is always fueled by something. There's a lot of energy contained within an addictive behavioral pattern. 
and that energy comes from unprocessed pain a lot of the time. So for me, I was adopted at a very young age and I'm very grateful for the life which I've had. I wouldn't be sat here today having stimulating conversations with people like you had I not had the upbringing which I did have. But as an early teenager, when I came to the realization of what it meant to be adopted, at that point of realization, a belief was formed and beliefs and values are largely what create who we are as human beings. They culminate to make our identity. And in that moment of realization, of understanding what it meant to be adopted, I formed a belief of I'm not wanted, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable. These kind of sentiments were what became my reality. Within those beliefs was emotions like shame and guilt because I just felt so different to everybody else. I'd looked at friends at school and just feel like I wasn't quite the same as them in some way. And that made me feel uncomfortable. That caused me to feel quite anxious when I was around other people because I didn't feel like I fit in quite a lot of time. And in order to fit in, I would take drugs or I would drink or um, I would engage in other behaviours which were very highly stimulating and lead to addiction. So the reason I'm explaining this is because it should help people understand that all behaviour has a purpose, especially addictive behaviours. The fact that I was adopted led to me seeking connection and comfort in destructive behavioural patterns like taking cocaine and drinking and smoking weed and this kind of thing. So that was one of those pivotal events which caused that trauma and pain which I was holding on to for a long time. And then a second one was my adoptive mother dying when I was 18. And at that point in time, I was deep in other addictive behaviours. And because I was seeking connection in a lot of the people which I was hanging around with, I had a big ego. I thought a lot of myself at that point in time. It was all artificial. It was all created by cocaine. There's a lot of people say cocaine is like confidence in a bag, and it absolutely was for me. So I was kind of living through this artificially inflated ego and I didn't want to show any weakness and one of my close friends was at my mum's funeral and because he was there I didn't want him to perceive me as being weak so I internalized do not cry no matter what I didn't carried the coffin down the aisle didn't cry but all of the pain and grief and emotion that I needed to feel in that moment wasn't expressed so, more trauma, just packaged away, stored, unprocessed. And that became a real problem four years later when I reached that point with my boss, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. That hammer shattering the glass was a crack. And that crack made way for all of this stuff that I was holding on to to come up. That then culminated in an identity crisis and short term it was one of the most horrific experiences i've ever had because it was incredibly painful and difficult crippling depression couldn't get out of bed didn't see the point in living anymore none of my life made sense it was awful but long term best thing that could have ever happened to me because it helped me realize that i was on autopilot and um seeking this connection outside of myself when in reality, that's not a sustainable solution. I now recognize that the only way to be truly happy and content is to find connection with oneself. And that comes with a big look 
under the rock, metaphorically speaking, which is hard, which is uncomfortable, it's difficult, and it's painful. But through doing that, deeper work, through therapy, coaching, introspective journaling, uh, some breath work, I also had two pretty profound psychedelic experiences, one drinking ayahuasca in Peru in 2018, and another drinking ayahuasca down in Cornwall uh, last year. All of this work I've been doing up until this point, I feel completely content and happy within myself now, but it's been an emotional roller coaster <laughs> to get here, full of uh, peeping under those various rocks that I mentioned. If I dissect down what you've just mentioned, um, mm. the first part was the stigma around addiction. Mm. So there's a stigma around addiction and there's a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. What would you, how would you define it, Dan? How would you kind of explore this area if we're trying to really kind of break down and strip down what it actually is and how it impacts people and personalities and behavior? And you mentioned identity as well. Yeah. We could go in so many different directions here, but I'm going to go in a direction which is particularly relevant to me right now because it's something that I've been pondering and reflecting on over the past couple of weeks. So my business is called The Freedom Solution and I work with high performers. So it's people who I used to be. I used to work in recruitment, later sales, high-functioning addict. Earn a good salary, got momentum, highly ambitious, but there's like a habit in the background which is quite destructive. And I had six people reach out to me directly on LinkedIn over the past week saying, I love your content. It really resonates with me, but I can't engage with it because I don't want my employer to judge me. I don't want my employer to see that I'm engaging in it because they will think less of me and think that I'm addicted. And I just find that fascinating because it goes to show how much shame there is around even admitting that somebody is struggling with addiction. So that culture that we've created is breeding shame around just raising a hand to say I've got this thing let alone looking beneath that and understanding what's actually driving it just the very fact of admitting that we have this thing called addiction which isn't even tangible it's just this idea it's this thought that we've created and put a box around to say this is addiction but um we've created a culture which um which regards addiction as inherently bad. It's a negative thing, which is quite dangerous, really, because it, it separates people into boxes and puts people who don't have addiction up on a pedestal and people who do as somehow being less in some way. But the fact of the matter is, we're all fellow strugglers. No one person is inherently better than another, and certainly not because one is struggling with addiction. So part of my mission really is encouraging leaders of businesses, but everyone at large, predominantly leaders of businesses, to accept that people do have problems, addiction being one of them, and it's okay to just talk about this kind of stuff. Because the more we talk about it, the more we get it out in the open and encourage people to do so, the less stigma there is about it by packaging it up and putting it away into the darker corners of society and culture it becomes stigmatized and a lot harder to speak about do you think there's a limited nature around support systems then so if you kind of reflect on your own mm. uh, past experience do you feel like 
there was a limitation in terms of support. You mentioned the conversation that you had with your boss, but yeah. do you think maybe if those support systems were in early, then this could have been prevented earlier? I'm just intrigued on that because you mentioned then from a leadership position and how that's filtered down mm. from the top to the bottom. Mm. I'm intrigued on how we want to raise awareness, but what support systems and mechanisms might be effective if, if that's the case? Yeah. I know that a lot of businesses like to talk the talk when it comes to mental health. But I think that there is a lack of vulnerability in leadership. And that's one of the fundamental problems. A lot of leaders within businesses will say, yeah, we've got mental health first aiders, but it becomes a box ticking exercise yeah. and there's no actual action that's being implemented as a result of it. Talking about doing a mental health awareness course is great, but what I believe we need to see is more vulnerability from these leaders and vulnerability comes with this connotation of being weak. And I think a lot of a lot of leaders are resistant to it because they don't want to be perceived as being weak by admitting, hey, I've got a problem too. I'm just like you. But actually, as an employee, I would have loved to see my director turn around and say, you know what? You've come back from work a different person. And I just wanted to check in. Is everything okay? rather than you've come back a different person i don't know who you are anymore imagine how different it's actually quite scary for me to think how different my life would have been i probably wouldn't have ended up training to be a therapist if you did that upon reflection but the sentiment stands that would be such a powerful position for a leader to take wouldn't it because their employees would be able to trust confide find confidence find a common understanding with their leaders which then builds an inherently more connected and um, long-term productive team, I'd say. How do we change that then? So education seems to be like the catalyst within this regard. Mm. Vulnerability in terms of leadership. Awareness around kind of mental health. How do we change a culture then? So it, it's, it's, you know, like you said, it's easier said than done. Uh, and people perceive that they're doing certain things around mental well-being and mental health. And you said the words tick box in exercise. How do we kind of mold a culture to, to really accept that these things are apparent? Like th this is a norm that people might be addicted to substances, might be addicted to alcohol or other factors, food, sugar, or other areas where that can bring trauma and, and, and kind of cover the cracks as you kind of alluded to. Mm. How do we kind of mold and change the culture then? Because... We seem to be aware of it, and our conversation is that, okay, this needs to be done, but how do we kind of, okay, like, let's actually really install this? How do we try and create an environment that is very aware of these issues and normalize it? I think that's kind of... Normalizing it is the key, yeah. I think we're, we're in a natural evolution right now, and we've gone from complete shame and disregard of mental health to awareness and now I actually believe that we're in a place of hyper awareness and this is a belief of mine too much awareness leads to analysis paralysis and we're at that point now whereby 
a lot of people are talking about mental health and a lot of people like to know about it. But we've probably got too much awareness. And what we need to do is dial that back a bit and increase self-awareness. There's a big difference between oh, general awareness. I am aware of what anxiety is. And I know how my anxiety operates within my body. It's a massive difference. And a lot, not a lot of these mental health awareness um, courses, not to knock them, by the way, they're doing good work in helping people become aware of what anxiety is, what depression is, perhaps what addiction is. I don't know if they're doing much on that, but we need more people who are emotionally and psychologically trained to be helping individual employees understand how to navigate their own bodies, how to understand and navigate their own emotions. Because culturally, we have created a society where we almost instinctively look outside of ourselves for guidance. Because there's always a magic bullet. There's always a pill that we can take to help ourselves feel better. And that surrender of control to something outside of us is systemic at this point. To the point where if we feel anxious, we immediately look for a solution outside of ourselves. Well, there must be some medication that I can go and take to help myself feel better. Or depression, we go and get pills from a doctor. To the point where I posted on LinkedIn yesterday about this skinny jab that I've seen. There's There's an injection which has been approved by the NHS which suppresses people's appetite. This this is systemic at the deepest level. We just want the quickest fix that we possibly can. And all you've got to do is look at the type of content we consume. It's all in incredibly short form on television. It's um, jump cuts every four seconds. Everything we do is short form, even down to the amount of time which we're expecting it to take to heal something like an emotional discomfort. It's always looking outside of ourselves, but we need to encourage more individual responsibility for ourselves, our actions, and our feelings. Quite a long-winded answer there. Hopefully, I've come back around to what we were speaking about insofar as self-awareness is really what we need. Yeah, on self-awareness then. So if we go to kind of your experience where you said that you were kind of covering the cracks with substances, etc., was there was there ever a moment whilst you were doing that that you kind of knew deep down that this ain't right? I always feel, and this is personal point of view, is that when people drink excessively, they know that they shouldn't be doing it. Mm. If you're eating excessively, you know that you shouldn't be doing it, but you're doing it. Mm. And you mentioned that that behavioural element, and I'm sure you can explain mm. and elaborate on that in a moment. But was there a point where you you kind of knew it weren't right, but you just did it? Mm. I mean, I'm intrigued on that, the thought process, because there must have been some voice there, mm. which, again, enabled you to awaken that later on. Yeah, there was. And it got louder and louder and louder as the years went on to that point where the hammer went against the mirror. Mm. In the early years, I was unconscious for the most part. I was completely on autopilot. And the first time I ever did drugs, I was 14. So I'm age 14 till I'd say about 18, completely non-conscious. Didn't really have any conscience about me. I was just flying through life. Didn't really know what I was going to be doing. I thought I'd go into sales because I could earn great money and that would allow me to buy more drugs, go on cool holidays, buy nice cars, materialistic stuff. That's what. That's all I was interested in. But then it did change. 
And it was because of the messages which I was receiving from people who I was partying with. Even the people who I was sniffing cocaine with around a kitchen table until five o'clock in the morning would say, wow, you're pushing it pretty hard, huh? Even from them, <laughs> I'd get those kind of messages. And that's like, oh, okay, maybe I do have a problem here. Maybe there's something not quite right. Because I was always the last person standing. And that was my ego again. Like I mentioned earlier, I had this enormous ego. I just wanted to be validated and accepted. And that that caused me to always feel like I had to be the last person standing, which is such a ridiculous thought. Now, looking back on it, I wanted to be the last person who was up drinking or the last person who was doing cocaine because that meant that I was the best. Yeah, but yeah. I called bullshit on myself. It just isn't like that. I suppose that an element of masculinity kind of creeps in there as well. And you mentioned kind of businesses and, and kind of that materialistic kind of lifestyle of the girls, the holidays, the goods, etc. That kind of adds a social fabric into that. I'm the, the man to do this, I, I presume. Absolutely. I spent a long time working in recruitment as well. And recruitment breeds lads. It's lad culture. It's beers on a Thursday night. Drinks, cocaine, strip club on a Friday night, and then <laughs> back home Saturday to go out with your mates on Saturday night. Yeah. It's relentless and it's expected, which is the challenging thing. And this is something that I find with the people who I work with now who are largely me five years ago. It's a trap. You get sucked into it yeah. because a lot of people want to fit into the tribe. We're tribal beings. Yeah. Ultimately, when we join a new business, we're entering a new tribe. We want to be a part of that. And if the tribe which we've joined is going out and partying multiple times a week, well, guess what? We're probably going to do that as well. So we become a part of it. And then later on down the line, we mature, we develop emotionally. We think, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I here? I don't want to be a part of this. Mm. So it's uh, challenging, particularly in target-driven environments like sales and recruitment and this kind of thing. It's um, almost an expected norm at this point. For, for those that are listening or watching this, they might think, okay, I... I, I I resonate with what you're saying, um, but I'm kind of caught in that group of, you know, I, if, if I don't go out drinking or if I don't do these activities, and again, from an employability point of view, it's like you're not seen as kind of the the group and could that impact my performance in terms of promotion, et cetera, and, and you kind of just end up falling into that trap. It might even be friendships as well, where you kind of might be surrounded with friends that are doing activities that you don't feel are valuable to you deep down. How does one take themselves away from it? You said with tribal human beings. Mm. How does one recognize that and also kind of go uh, say to themselves, okay, I need to maybe break away from here. Mm. Because the problem is, is that there's an element of loneliness that comes with that. Mm. And I think people fear the lonely element and kind of just accept being part of the group. Mm. And I think that's, that's the challenge in terms of I need to step away, but there's an independency. And then these thoughts of, and you mentioned identity that might, in terms of maybe crisis, etc. I don't know, that might hit you all of a sudden there. How does one drift away and kind of stay loyal to their values, if that makes sense? Yeah. Values is an interesting point of conversation because I don't think many people understand what their values truly are. People join businesses and we see company values which are plastered over the website and we go, oh, that's nice. They're all about honesty, courage and integrity. But most people were never taught about values. I was never taught about values. Yeah. So 
values is a good place to start actually if somebody's in a position where they're recognizing themselves as going down a path which they don't think is going to serve them look into your values understand what your values are if you're clear on your values you can then use that to align with a new business if that's something that you know you need to do insofar as getting out of the current business that you're in because it's destructive and not serving you get clear on what your values are and you can do that by writing a vision statement that's what i usually do with my clients if somebody's not clear on what their values are write a vision statement don't focus on time don't focus on money just focus on what you want your life to look like where do you want to be who do you want to be with what do you want to be doing what kind of people do you want to have around you and then you can extract values from that second point loneliness if there are people out there who know that they need to leave the role that they're in right now but are afraid of going down a route whereby they'll become lonely my question to them would be why are you afraid of being with yourself what is it about being lonely that makes you feel uncomfortable because something that i've learned since leaving employment and becoming an entrepreneur building a business of my own is that being successful is lonely particularly if somebody has an ambition of building like an online business like i have yeah. my therapy business is entirely online so it's inherently lonely doing that in the digital space sure there are connections that we have on social media platforms but it's not the same as this yeah. having another human being sat next to you being successful is quite lonely at times and ideally we want to be aspiring to arriving at a place of being at peace with not being at peace because there is always going to be things that trigger us and cause us to feel discomfort and the sooner we can arrive at a place of acceptance and surrender of that the sooner we can start building a meaningful life just trying to think back to the other points that you mentioned on that people out there who are also feeling pressured to be part of a lifestyle which they don't yeah. fully agree with yeah but there's no alternative, that's the point. There's a limit, limitation in terms of alternative. There's that fear of being different. Like you said, that tribal aspect. Yeah, the fear of being different. It's such an interesting concept to think about. But the fact of the matter is, we are all different. <laughs> right? Like, I think, I can't remember who it was who I saw say this, but it's like, embrace your inner freak. Yeah. The sooner you can just let your weirdness out, the sooner you can live authentically. And that was so important for me. That was a major revelation. I spent so many years trying to change my body in some way. I took steroids for a long time. For over four years, I took steroids because ego, coming back into the conversation again, I wanted to be big and appear masculine. It's, it's inauthentic. It's not really who I am. And whilst the quick fixes might sh might seem more appealing... It wasn't anywhere near as rewarding and satisfying as just embracing who I am with all my lumps and bumps and bat around my waist and love handles and all the rest of it. So for people who don't feel like they've got a way out in a job role, like you mentioned, they do. They're just choosing not to acknowledge it at this point. Yeah. There's always another option, but it's not always going to be an easy option. And this is an inconvenient truth about growing as a human being. Sometimes taking the hard road is going to prove to be beneficial for you. And growth 
in terms of its word and what it gives you when you just hear the word growth, it sounds quite positive and lovey-dovey and pleasant but growth is actually really uncomfortable because in order to grow you've got to do things that you've never done before that means pushing the needle pushing boundaries stepping into the unknown so if somebody is in a role and they don't see no way out maybe the way which they can't see is the way they need to go they just need to try something completely different interesting and and i want you to kind of pick up on that in terms of your transition you mentioned the conversation that you had with your boss yeah and then there was that spiritual awakening mm. realization that this needs to change mm. how did you change your environment then so you and and, and also as, as well add identity into that mm. you mentioned you had kind of trouble nature within that you've identified that you want to change yeah and the people that might be listening and watching this go okay i, I resonate with that mm. what do you do what does that transition look like What's kind of the step-by-step -step process, if, well, if there is one, mm. in terms of do you kind of change your environment, change your way of life? Obviously, they're kind of cliches, but I'm just intrigued on the nitty-gritty of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll explain it by way of a model which was developed by a very smart guy called Robert Diltz, and it's a model called the Neurological Levels. If somebody wants to go and look this up, there's a really easy, simple-to-understand model. You know, Imagine a pyramid. And there's six levels of that pyramid. The bottom one being internal and external environment. External environment being where we're sat right now. Internal environment being inside our body. Then skills and capabilities. Then um, beliefs. Then values. And then identity. And then there's an optional kind of spiritual level of purpose, which some people resonate with, other people won't. And I was training to be a therapist at the time my boss said those words to me. So I was aware of this model. And... It's really powerful because it suggests that in order for any human being to make meaningful change in their life, something at every single one of those levels needs to change. Don't necessarily have to work your way from the bottom to the top, but environment plays an enormous role in our lives, how we feel about things. You know, if you're trying to work in a cluttered environment, for example, you're probably not going to be very productive. Like people like Jordan Peterson say, tidy your room. Yeah. Really simple. Yeah. Tidy your room, make your bed in the morning. It makes a massive difference. So focusing on environment, first of all, at that point in time, I moved to Wales. Why Wales? I liked mountain biking at the time, and uh, I was conscious that I needed to make some changes in my life, and I still wanted something that gave me an element of joy. So I thought, how can I maximize mountain biking? I'll move to the mecca of mountain biking in the UK and move to Wales. So I moved to Wales. Then my skills and capabilities i was training as a therapist at the time but i was also still messing about quite a lot insofar as i was smoking weed that's a behavior that's something which i was choosing to do i was never dependent on weed like some other people are but after i heard those words from my boss i recognized that something needed to change within my behavior that was stopping smoking weed so i decided to stop smoking weed then beliefs now Changing beliefs isn't as easy as changing environment. You want to change your environment, you can just get up and walk somewhere else. Beliefs are quite difficult to change because a lot of the time they're deeply rooted in some kind of trauma. Like I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, a lot of my beliefs were formed at the point of me being adopted, really. So that's months after I was born. You can change your beliefs 
without the help of a therapist or coach might take you quite a bit longer you could do it by way of um journaling and what i like to call beating beliefs into place by just kind of constantly giving your unconscious mind evidence that you're not that way anymore but sometimes that can just serve as putting a plaster on top of a gaping um bleeding wound and then identity identity is a big one because it's essentially a combination of all of the other levels that i've just mentioned there your environment and people you surround yourself with the beliefs that you have about yourself what values you hold to be true identity shifts happen over time as a result of the actions that we take to change and the work that we do on ourselves so as a result of moving to wales and continually kind of chipping away at these various factors making sure that i was behaving in the right way um, eating well sleeping well not smoking weed continuing to do therapy all of these things over time created a new identity for myself but it's something that gets gradually pieced together almost like a jigsaw puzzle and i don't think it ever gets completed I'm still constantly working on myself. I still do therapy at least once a month. I have a coach that I work with every two weeks. And there are still blind spots that I get mirrors held up to me by my therapist and coaches now. And that's because that uh, moment where I had that difficult conversation with the boss shattered my previous identity. And from that point onwards where I said, right, I'm going to move to Wales. I'm going to stop smoking weed. I'm going to make sure that I eat well, exercise, all this stuff. That was me starting to build my new identity up from that point so is there ever a time where you kind of get triggers to kind of go back to that old self is there ever a moment where you where you think i'd love to drink alcohol or i'd love to take substances and it's not like it's not like that you want to but it's just your brain tricks you to to think that you you want it is there ever a moment like that and and the reason i say that is is related related to other factors for example food Hmm. people stop eating high processed sugary foods but they crave it at at certain points Mm -hmm. is it a little bit like that in terms of in your regard i'm just intrigued on that process of whether that happens and how you control that because you said that you're kind of still working on that so Mm. i'm just intrigued on how you yeah that lifestyle no that's done that's gone that is a past identity which has been buried now yeah there are still triggers for certain things that i have to manage and it's usually stimulants. Stimulants really do get me. Uh, I can still drink a lot of coffee. I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that. It's not affecting my life yeah. in any major way now. But as far as slipping back into a lifestyle of doing cocaine yeah. and other drugs, that's that's gone now. Yeah. But it almost serves as a nice segue into the conversation about the addictive personality. Yeah. A lot of people do suspect that they've got an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. And I used that as a get-out-of-jail-free card for a long yeah. time. A lot of people would say, oh, you're still doing drugs. Yeah, I've just got an addictive personality. It's okay, yeah. as if it is. It's not, right? But a lot of people say that. And whilst some people are more genetically predisposed, pre, 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 help me out with this word, what do I want to say? Predisposed, genetically predisposed to having an addictive personality, that's not an excuse to be doing those kind of behaviours. If you have had a difficult upbringing, you are more prone to having an addictive personality later on in life. 
but it's not a get out of jail free card. It's just something that you're going to have to put more work into managing like I do now. So you mentioned that transition was a challenge. You mentioned the words depression, kind of couldn't get out of bed and you mm. had to kind of really figure out your values and your identity and change this persona that you've had in the past and spiritual awakening. I think that's kind of the, the key word there. So what techniques would you use uh, in terms of that practice? Obviously, there might be some people that are listening to this that might not have the the knowledge, but also maybe the the tools to kind of go to speak to coaches or speak to others around these feelings there might be mentioned ego and masculinity there might be keeping it all all in but they Mm. kind of know deep down can you kind of like elaborate and and give some techniques on 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 how people can transition away from maybe some of those mental health issues that they might hold and how they can live healthier and better lifestyle that is good in the long term yeah sure so trying to pick a route to go with that if there are people out there who recognize that they've got work which they need to do and it's coming from a place of ego their ego is preventing them from doing that work ego lives in the mind the first thing you can do to overcome that you don't need a therapist or a coach to do you just need to form a connection between the body and the mind And the longest journey we'll ever make is from our head to our heart. And meditation is a really easy way to do that. Meditation isn't um, a universal truth insofar as it will help you rediscover your identity and completely transform yourself as a person. For some people it might do, but if you're recognizing there's a, a disconnect within you and you don't feel entirely yourself and you recognize that you may be feeling a little bit anxious, a little bit, sad a lot of the time disconnected well meditation is a really powerful way to center yourself and guide yourself into your body because it often gets overcomplicated. there's a lot of apps out there which people like to delve into when it comes to meditation but if i'm taking a client through it it's really simple it's just follow the breath close your eyes and follow the breath a lot of people say that they can't meditate they can they're choosing not to and the reason they're choosing not to is because they don't like being with themselves yeah We're constantly reaching outside of ourselves these days, whether it's listening to a podcast, listening to music, YouTube video, one in the background whilst we're walking. Mm. Not knocking these things as bad, but there is power in just being with yourself. And that is so easy to do. Everybody's got five minutes a day to sit down, close their eyes, and just focus on your breath. That's a really easy thing to do. Be present, I think that's kind of the key. Be present, yeah, absolutely. We're... We're always living in either the the past or the present these days. You know, depression, that's in the past. Anxiety, that's in the future. Anxiety, we're predicting something that we don't want to happen to happen. We're creating a narrative or a story, which is a worst case scenario, which is then making our body think that that's going to happen. Thus, we produce anxiety and it feels uncomfortable. Depression, we're thinking about something which has happened in the past. And we're reliving that experience as if it's happening again. Making us feel uncomfortable and pain. If you're just here now, where the breath is, the breath is never in the future. It's never in the past. That's why meditation suggests to focus on the breath, because it is only ever going to be in the present. 
you can't experience those discomfort, those uncomfortable emotions like anxiety and depression. That's why it's so powerful. Mm. So meditation, is it any other effective ways? Exercise, I'm sure you're throwing that in. Diet as well. Is there anything else that kind of, on reflection of, of your transition, anything that stands out? Exercise was a big thing for me. I don't know this for sure, but I think I'm probably along the ADHD spectrum. I'm very highly distractible. Yeah. If there's something I'm not interested in, I'll zone out and end up flying through uh, cyberspace. And cardiovascular exercise has been scientifically proven to be really beneficial for people who have ADHD. People who have ADHD often have addiction as well. They're quite closely aligned in terms of um, their probability. So if somebody is experiencing discomfort, I would recommend that they go and get plenty of exercise. If they can do cardiovascular exercise as opposed to weightlifting, it would probably feel better, especially if you can do it outside as well. There's been other studies which have been shown to demonstrate the um, benefits of doing exercise outside. Simple things like hydration, something which I had to put so much conscious thought into doing and I still struggle to do now, forget to drink enough water, but it sounds um, it sounds benign, but it makes such a big difference, as I'm sure you've noticed in yourself. You drink a lot more water, you feel a lot more refreshed, a lot happier and a lot healthier. Little things, as well as going and doing an hour-long therapy session every week, you know? Everything culminates to create a more positive existence. Mm. So talk to me about the free solution model then that you've put together within your company. You, you mentioned your, your, your business throughout the, the uh, conversation. Mm. Do you want to maybe just let listeners aware of your role and your current duty at the moment and how this philosophy has come, come about? Sure. Yeah, so the reason I created my own model is because Whilst I've worked with some incredible therapists and coaches over the years, I find that it typically tends to be either therapy or coaching. And before I go into these, I'll just explain headline principles of both of those. Therapy, often misunderstood, comes with connotations of sitting in an old room with a big leather sofa, and someone with a clipboard in front of you. It's not like that. Therapy is just another form of conversation. And therapy is about looking back to resolve past wounds. Coaching is about looking forward to create the life that you desire. Overcoming addiction requires both of those things, which is why I created this model. So free stands for focus on what we're aiming to achieve. R for reality what's actually going on right now in your life that's contributing towards the addiction. E, exploration. Who have you got around you? Where are you spending your time? And then an empowerment. What do you want to create for yourself beyond addiction? And empowerment is so important because once people overcome an addiction, one of the biggest, if not the biggest things that will prevent people from going back into relapse and their addiction is having a compelling reason not to. And it comes to purpose, meaning, driving towards something bigger than you. So the free methodology is a blend of therapy and coaching. The first three phases are about therapy. It's about looking back and understanding what the emotional contributors are towards the addiction and resolving whatever needs to be resolved there using 
uh, therapeutic frameworks largely derived from cognitive hypnotherapy. So that's what I'm trained in. And cognitive hypnotherapy is a blend of um, traditional hypnotherapy, positive psychology, solution-focused therapy, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what you'd get if you went to the NHS. And after the healing has been done, there is, at that point, no emotional drive for addiction. So we need to look forward to create a reality that is going to keep people from slipping back into an addictive behavior. So in essence, to summarize, the three methodology is a blend of therapy and coaching, which is something that I just didn't have when I was working through a lot of my puzzles. I worked with a therapist and then worked with a coach, which worked well, but I thought, well, why would you not combine the two into a all-encompassing solution for those that are listening or watching dan where can they find this model can they find you on a certain website a web page yeah social media how how does that linkedin is where i hang out these days yeah i was doing a bit on instagram but i'll be completely honest i just don't really like it as a platform i find that i get too distracted yeah on likewise on instagram (laughs) i see its value i see its merit but I like to write long-form text. That's how I feel I can convey the message within the message. So I like LinkedIn for that purpose. It's where I can get across a good quality message. And it's where you can find more information on the free method as well. Yeah. Are you posting regularly on LinkedIn? Every day. Every day. So it's kind of a a, a habit that you form through kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I typically post at 11 a.m. And that's a longer form written post. And then I'll find an article that I find interesting and stick my thoughts up on that in the afternoon most days. Um, So the final question, and I I always say this to my guests, Mm. is that if you could look back or look forward, what would would you change or what what would you do? And I want to maybe look forward because I think you've elaborated very much on the past and you've really wrote down your experiences. Um, Looking forward, Dan... Mm. Is there a legacy that you want to leave? Is there anything that you are set out to achieve in terms of long term? Is there a goal? Now you've you mentioned moving to Wales and then now you live in Manchester. Is there anything that you kind of set out around this addiction in, uh, area that you feel really passionate about? And if you were to maybe put your feet up and go, okay, I'm coming away from this. I'm going to set out to the sunset and, and put my feet up around kind of my performance role. Um what is it that you want to kind of leave as a kind of a, a legacy? That's a great question. There are a number of things that I want to leave behind as a legacy, but as an abstract, I want to change how we view addiction. Okay. I think that it's back to front at this point. And one of the first things I said on this podcast was we typically view the behavior as being a problem with addiction. And that's not the case. It's the emotion. It's the challenge that somebody is experiencing that's driving them into the behavior. And there's no shame in realizing that. And that's what I want to help the world. Not necessarily the world. A lot of people do recognize that. But the environments where I used to hang around, corporate culture in the UK, I want to change that. I want corporate culture to come to an understanding that it's okay to raise your hand and say, I'm struggling with addiction and I'm working through it. Love that, Dan. Just want to thank you for for joining me today. Uh, And like I said, with the LinkedIn and the coaching philosophy and business we'll put those all in the description so if anyone's watching or listening they can check that out and um, from my own personal point of view down to find you 
an incredible human being. Uh, thank you for talking. And yeah, until the next one, speak soon. Thank you, ma'am. Cheers. Cheers.